The, um, the, the past uh, few weeks have reminded us of that shocking case um, of Oscar Pistorius and um, how surprising that was and the events of, of that case where um, uh, almost uh, a Shakespearean character, um, Oscar, um, by his own admission, fired um, four shots um, and uh, so much of the, the focus of that case, so much of the incidents um, that uh, were looked at, that were pursued, were the place, placing of the shell casings, um, were the lights on, um, would, would Oscar Pistorius be granted bail, um, was he a flight risk, would he run again? And amongst all of this, and I make no comment on whether uh, the, the outcome of the case, that's for the courts to decide, but amongst all of this, one of Reva Steenkamp's friends, who was there at the courtroom, said, I think we need to remember that someone died here. What was she saying? I think she was saying, stop for a minute. I need justice for my friend. We're moving on as if um, Oscar's the victim here, and if he does or doesn't get bail and so on, but I need justice for my friend. It's a constant cry in, in, in the scriptures, isn't it? That cry for justice. Oh Lord, how long must I ask for help and you do not listen? Uh, Psalm 73. Surely God is good to Israel, says the psalmist, reminding himself to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped because I looked at them and, and everything looked healthy and prosperous. And, and that contrast there. So we find ourselves um, back in, in 1 Kings, and uh, here in chapter 21, you may, be, may or may not be surprised, we're back with Elijah, and uh, we'll notice, first of all, a disciple who counts the cost. A disciple who counts the cost. Now, God's told uh, Elijah in chapter 18, verse 19, that he's reserved 7,000 who've not bowed the knee to Baal. And we've already seen Obadiah, and now we have Naboth, the Jezreelite. We only have it here in verses 2 and 3, but he casts a shadow over the whole of the chapter. He looms over it all. And it all starts for Naboth with his vineyard um, next to the royal palace. Perhaps he provided wine to the king, we don't know. Um, but Jezreel is, is Ahab's winter palace. So, um, so when it starts to get a bit colder, he, he will come down from Samaria to this uh, beautiful 11-acre um, palace uh, with uh, towers on the walls and uh, had a, a moat 30, uh, 30 feet wide uh, going around it and a huge enormous elaborate gateway with six chambers in as he went into this palace. And next to it was Naboth's little vineyard. Um, and I guess uh, Ahab uh, decided that he would have you know Riverford Farms uh, right next to his palace and that he would have Fresh vegetables um, uh, for for his uh, for his table, um, and so Ahab makes an offer to Naboth in verse two. Ahab said to Naboth, "Let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden, since it is close to my palace. In exchange, I will give you a better vineyard, or if you prefer, I will pay you whatever it is worth." On the surface, that seems quite a reasonable offer, doesn't it? I'll give you exactly what it's worth, or you know, I'll give you, um, I'll give you a better vineyard. Not only an equivalent vineyard, 
um, but a better vineyard. But Naboth doesn't seem to want to play ball. Verse 3, he says, The Lord forbid, Yahweh forbid, that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. Now, what does he do there? Is he being precious? Is he being awkward about this particular piece of land? Couldn't he accommodate the king in some way? I was speaking to someone a while ago who had a major roadway built next to their house in the old days of compulsory purchase orders. And all they got was a pittance for the loss of the value on their house. Ahab isn't offering that. He's offering uh, what seems to be a fair, fair deal. But the reason Naboth doesn't want to sell is not because of his attachment to the vintage of the wines or because of the time that he spent cultivating it. It's because the Lord had commanded that the land shouldn't be sold. Let me read some verses from uh, Leviticus chapter 25. From verse 23, the land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine and you are but aliens and my tenants. Throughout the country that you hold as a possession, you must provide for the redemption of the land. If one of your countrymen becomes poor and sells some of his property, his nearest relative is to come and redeem what his countrymen has sold. If, however, a man has no one to redeem it for him, but he himself prospers and acquires sufficient means to redeem it, he is to determine the value for the years since he sold it and refund the balance to the man to whom he sold it. He can then go back to his own property. But if he does not acquire the means to repay him, what he sold will remain in the possession of the buyer until the year of Jubilee. It will then be returned in the Jubilee and he can then go back to his property. So what happens is every seven years the land must be, must be rested and go fallow and, and slaves must be set free um, and... Um, uh, and uh, debts must be cancelled. And then after seven lots of seven, uh, on the 50th year, the Day of Atonement, you have this, uh, you have this uh, super uh, jubilee. And in addition to those other things, what happens is all of the land reverts back to the families um, that, that it belongs to as their inheritance. So you can never really sell land. It's like it's long leasehold. You have to, you know, you only get it for 50 years and its, its value will diminish over that time. And there are two principles that, that underpin that. The first is, and that Naboth is obeying, the first is the land belongs to God. And the second principle is that God is king. Now with the Doomsday Book, William the Conqueror when, when he came over in 1066 and decided to, um, in a, in a one day we could all remember from school, decided to come over and, and conquer England, the Doomsday Book was a record that he made of everything in England. Because now that he conquered England, everything was his. So he wrote it all down, you know, parish of such and such, four chickens, and so on and so forth. Everything belonged to him. And no doubt Ahab probably saw himself in that light. He was the king, everything in the land belonged to him. But Naboth knew otherwise. Naboth's land, his obedience, everything that he had was it God's, was God's to command. It all belonged to God. If God said the land must not be sold permanently, then it would not be sold permanently. And he was going to have to say no. It was God's plan that no Israelite should be destitute, no Israelite should be in servitude. And that's what must happen. So he must have, 
He must have taken a long look at his wife and sons, who 2 Kings 9.26 tells were also murdered by Ahab, and he must have swallowed hard and then given his answer. Now, how, how could Naboth do this? Wasn't it the, the dream of every Israelite that they would remain in peace in, under their own vine? Wasn't that the fulfilment of God's blessing in the land? But Naboth obviously was looking forward like Moses. He chose to be ill-treated with God's people rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. Like Abraham, he looked forward to a different city without foundations whose architect and builder is God to an inheritance kept for him that can never perish, spoil or fade. He could say with Luther, and though they take our life, goods, honour, children, wife, yet is their profit small, these things shall vanish all. The city of God remaineth. And then, well, for Naboth, there is no deliverance, is there, from the fiery furnace. When the order is given to execute Naboth, the elders and nobles in verse 11, they do exactly what they've been ordered to do by Jezebel. They know Jezebel, they know her track record, and they have families and livelihoods too, and they're not prepared to give all of that up at God's command. And I wonder if we've understood that that's what the Christian life is. It's it's a strong call to discipleship. The gospel is free to receive. But the call to discipleship costs us not just our Sundays, our quiet times, a percentage of our money. But it it costs us all that we are and all that we have. And that's why Jesus calls uh, on would-be disciples to consider the cost and weigh up the consequences If you're a king planning for war, if you're going to send off warships, or if you're someone taking on a major construction project in the city, you're going to weigh up the consequences. So Naboth, firstly, is a disciple who counts the cost. Secondly, a God who acts justly. I saw someone walking about with a t-shirt on yesterday, a little boy, and it said, actually, it is all about me. On his t-shirt, actually, it is all about me. And I think that could sum up the philosophy of Ahab and Jezebel. It is all about me. Now, the previous chapter, chapter, the chapter twenty, Ahab is specifically told in the battle that he fights with the uh, um, with with Aram. He is specifically told in verse thirteen. Do you see this vast army? I will give it into your hand today. Then you will know I am the Lord. Before that battle, he's, to- he's told that he will have victory in the battle so that, he- so that he gets it into his head that Yahweh is God. And um, the-, the Arameans think, well, you know, it must be because of geography, right? So their gods are the gods of the hills, verse 23. So let's just, pl- let's just fight them on the plain. Let's fight them on the plains, on the flatland. That'll work for us. Verse 28 of chapter 20. The man of God comes up to the king of Israel, Ahab, and he says, Because the Arameans think that God is a God of the hills and not of the God of the valleys, I will deliver this vast army into your hands, and you will know that I am the Lord. But he doesn't, does he? He doesn't take on the one message that God wants to tell him. And so what does he do? He wins victory over uh, Ben-Hadad, but he lets him go, which he's not meant to, meant to do. And so the word of the Lord comes through a prophet 
because you've not obeyed the Lord, verse 36, as soon as you leave me a, a lion, sorry, that's, that's the other prophet. Um, he, verse 42, this is what the Lord says, you have set free a man I had determined should die, therefore it is your life for his life. So Ben-Hadad is God's prisoner, and it's for God to decide what happened. It's his victory. And, and what's, uh, what's uh, Ahab's reaction? Verse 43, sullen and angry, the king of Israel went to his palace in Samaria. It's a kind of self-centered combination, isn't it? Surprise, surprise. He's, he's sullen and angry, and, and that's what we find in verse 4. Naboth says, you can't have my vineyard. Verse 4 of chapter 21. So Ahab went home sullen and angry. This is kind of Ahab's pattern of behaviour. If I said that lying on your bed and sulking and refusing to eat is teenage behaviour, it would be insulting to teenagers, wouldn't it? This is what Ahab is doing. It's ridiculous behaviour. It's as self-centred behaviour always is because it's disconnected from reality. There he is. He's just sullen and sulking. And he writes God out of the picture, just as he did in the battle, um, when he made his own decisions without, you know, without reference to God at all, he takes God out of this situation. So Jezebel says to him, you know, what's going on here? And he says in verse 6, because I said to Naboth the Jezreelite, sell me your vineyard, or if you prefer, I will give you another vineyard on its, in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. But that wasn't what Naboth said at all. Naboth didn't say, I won't give you my vineyard. Naboth had said, Yahweh forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. So Ahab writes God out of all his major decision making. Jezebel, on the other hand, her rejection, her sins go ahead of her, don't they? Her rejection is, is much the more obvious. This isn't the way that we do it in Tyre. My father, Ethbel, would never have done it like this. Ahab doesn't really stand much comparison. Is this how you act as a king, she scolds him. Why be sad? Look, just go and help yourself to nachos, put the TV on. I'll set up a fake trial and I'll give the local authorities a call. Her rejection of God also is not because she doesn't know the truth. She clearly does know the truth. She understands in Deuteronomy 17 verse 6 that two witnesses are are needed. She understands that someone... Who, who breaks those laws needs to be stoned to death, and she understands that it needs to happen outside of the uh, outside of the the, the, uh, the town. So she can use religion and dress it up. She's not ignorant. And there's a contrast set before us, isn't there? There's a contrast between Naboth, and Ahab, and Jezebel. There's Jezebel who flatly rejects God's authority, and there's Ahab who sort of ignores it and does his own thing, pushes it, pushes it under the carpet. And then there's Naboth, who's obedient to Christ, even when it costs him not only his field, but his life. And so he could, in the words of Jesus, anyone who does not take up his cross, that is the right to rule his own life and follow me, is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. And I guess the question for us is, who makes those final decisions that are decisions of significance, especially when what we want and what God wants don't overlap. But all the same, we get to verse 16, and Ahab's in possession of the vineyard, isn't he? Verse 16, when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up 
and went down to take possession of Naboth's vineyard. God doesn't seem to have done anything, to have intervened. In chapter 18, we've had the, the, the instances of Carmel. Do you remember where the fire came down from heaven? And, and, and Elijah's there and all the prophets of Baal. And then we've seen those battles in, in, in verse 20 against Ben-Hadad. And then verse 22, battle resumes again. It's all on the big scale. It's all international. It's all uh, 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 you know, macro, broad stroke stuff. And then in the midst of all of these things of national significance, we've just, have, we've just got this one little guy, uh, Naboth. And he, you know, he's not very important. He's not a captain of industry or he's not a member of the ruling classes. He's just a smallholder. How many people even know what happened to Naboth? I mean, there's Ahab and Jezebel. They know for sure. And um, a few neighbours of Naboth and his sons and perhaps their friends at school and so on. There'll be a few officials, but they're not going to say anything. All the documents are going through the shredder. Maybe even Elijah doesn't know himself until, again in verse 17, the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Go down and meet Ahab, king of Israel, who rules in Samaria. He is now in Naboth's vineyard, where he has gone to take possession of it. Then say to him, this is what the Lord said. Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? Then say to him, this is what the Lord said. In the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood. Yes, yours. And so this story tells us that injustice does matter to God. Injustice does matter to God. I heard quite a harrowing uh, illustration in a Tim Keller talk recently. He was talking about a, a younger pastor who'd had a ministry in a poor inner city area. And amongst... Uh, uh, the people in his church was a teenage girl of uncommon beauty who'd become a Christian and was growing in the Lord as she read her Bible, prayed and got involved in church. And she came to him one day and said that she was being pressurised into prostitution. What should she do? I said, no brainer for the pastor. He said, well, look, you've just got to resist. You've got to refuse, you've got to resist. You've got to read your Bible, you've got to pray, you've got to stay in fellowship. And uh, he, he needed to head away for sabbatical, but he said that he would see her when she came back. When he came back on his return, he discovered that she'd not been at church for some months. And that, well, when he did go and see her, all the light and joy had gone out of her eyes. And she told him that she'd been involved in prostitution. Why did you do that? He asked disbelievingly. Well, because they found my father and they beat him with baseball bats. And they said that if I didn't do what I was told, they would do the same to all of my brothers and worse if need be, until I agreed. And the pastor said to her, well, why didn't you go to the police? And she looked at him in disbelief as she replied, who do you think is running it all? Now, does God care about someone like that? A poor Latino girl who's just born on the wrong side of the tracks. This passage, Naboth's vineyard, tells us that God does care. God cares. He burns with justice. Even though Naboth has nothing to do with the global picture or the international stage, he's just a small guy in the back end of nowhere. God cares. God sees. God sends his prophet. Um, Chris uh, Wright tells the story of uh, an Indian Christian um, who came to read this passage and um, he says this. 
He grew up in one of the many backward and oppressed groups in India, part of a community that is systematically exploited and treated with contempt, injustice and sometimes violence. The effect on this youth was to fill him with a burning desire to rise above that station in order to be able to turn the tables on those who oppressed him and his community. He threw himself into his education and he went to college committed to revolutionary ideals and Marxism. His goal was to achieve the qualifications needed to gain some kind of power and thus the means to do something in the name of justice and revenge. He was contacted in his early days at college by some Christian students and given a Bible, which he decided to read out of casual interest, though he had no respect at first for Christians at all. It happened that the first thing he read in the Bible was the story of Naboth, Ahab and Jezebel in 1 Kings 21. He was astonished to find it was all about greed for land, abuse of power, corruption of the courts and violence against the poor things he himself was all too familiar with. But even more amazing was the fact that God took Naboth's side and not only accused Ahab and Jezebel of their wrongdoing, but also took vengeance upon them. Here was a God of real justice, a God who identified the real villains and who took real action against them. I never knew such a God existed, he exclaimed. He read on through the rest of Old Testament history and found his first impression confirmed. This God constantly took the side of the oppressed and took direct action against their enemies. Here was a God he could respect, a God he felt attracted to, even though he didn't know him yet. Because such a God would understand his own thirst for justice. And we know that justice does come, doesn't it? It comes later in two kings. Um, it comes at the end of uh, one kings for Ahab. He is uh, shot and bleeds out in his chariot and the dogs lick up his blood as uh, Elijah foretells here in verse 19. His son Joram is shot um, by Jehu, who is anointed by a prophet sent by Elisha. And he falls right beside Naboth's field. And his body is thrown into Naboth's field. And then, uh, and then Jezebel is standing at the ramparts of this beautiful 11-acre uh, palace in Jezreel. And she is thrown down. Uh, and the dogs devour her. And justice is brought about. It comes to the house of Ahab. We have a God of justice. Lastly, we have a saviour who extends mercy. Now, why is it that the widow's son is healed, but Elijah's intervention is too late for Naboth? We can't fully know. One thing the scriptures do teach us is that God uses injustice for good. That was the experience of Joseph, wasn't it? He's sold into slavery and then he's, he's thrown into prison for doing the right thing, not for doing the wrong thing. But what does he say to his brothers? He says, you intended it for good. You intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. And so it goes for the salvation of many nations. Secondly, Peter reminds his listeners with these words in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, um, that, um, uh, that God uh, intends it um, because uh, God delays judgment because, uh, because he is patient and not wanting uh, any to perish. 
So he says, do not forget this. With the Lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. As some understand slowness, he is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God's delay is out of mercy. I suppose the problem is, is that in wanting God to intervene justly now, it raises the question, with whom should God intervene? Does God intervene with, with Stalin and Hitler? Does God intervene with, with the next level down? Does he intervene further down with, with rapists and paedophiles? Does he intervene with, with you and me when we've drunk too much over the legal limit and we're driving and we shouldn't be? Does he intervene when we're callous with our staff and colleagues at work? I mean, who is it that God intervenes with? The problem is we're all on the wrong side of the wire. God's going to intervene about injustice. It's going to be with us. It's going to be now. We've all sinned. We're all sinners. The, the devil will tell us, as he's told Adam since, uh, since the beginning, that, that sin is life enhancing. And sin bring, brings freedom. But it doesn't. Elijah says to Ahab, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. The wages of sin are death. And that's true for us, as it's true for Ahab. But do you see uh, God's reaction? In, in verse 25 to 26, we have this, these two verses, and they've been put in brackets. And I think that the translators of our Bible have put them into brackets, because they don't really seem to fit with the narrative. Why have they been put there? Well, they've been put there just to emphasize how bad Ahab was, because the next few verses are going to tell us that he's offered grace. Ahab was uniquely evil in the way that he pursued idols and took God's people away from the living God. And um, no sooner have we been told that there's no one in the, in the whole history of evil, Israel who deserves judgment more than Ahab, but that God will delay his judgment because of Ahab's humbling of himself. Do you see how God loves to offer his grace to Ahab? Surely not, surely not Ahab. It's this offer of grace to people that are extremely unpleasant that makes Jonah furious, doesn't it? But it's this offer that gives us hope. No matter how bad we are, we all fall short of God's standards. He will forgive us if we turn to him in repentance and faith. And how is that possible? It's possible because 850 years later, there was someone else who was framed by two false witnesses. And who was executed on trumped-up charges. Who took God's anger upon himself on the cross. As he paid the price for our sins. And was raised to life for our justification. That we can be declared righteous. Just, uh, in, just in God's sight. And so the wrath and mercy of God. The justice of God is done. And is seen to be done. As Paul says in Romans God did this, the cross, to demonstrate his justice at the present time. So to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Justice will be done. This passage shows us that God is a God who cares passionately about justice. It may be that there's something, some injustice that you're struggling with and you don't believe that God cares about it. It may be something that happened in work. I know someone who refused uh, at the Christmas 
party after all the champagne and beer have been drunk, refused to go with all the Jaeger bombs, and his boss pretty much said, you've got to, you've got to get these down you. And um, everyone there on the team were drinking the, the Jaeger bombs. Everybody was, was all over the shop. And this person said, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. And uh, they were deselected from the team for, uh, I, I suppose, um, questioning the boss's authority. It may be that you have an injustice like that, that you, you're struggling with, or something from a family member. God is a God of justice. But also, have you run to him as, as your hiding place? The story of Stephen Lungu, I don't know if you've ever heard his story, he was born in Zimbabwe, and it sort of mirrors that, that Indian guy that I referred to earlier. Stephen Lungu was uh, born to a, a teenage mother in what was then Rhodesia, who didn't love him and uh, took him to the centre of the market square with his brother and sister and just left him there. Um, and uh, he was then taken by the police back to a series of aunts, none of whom wanted him uh, and one of whom uh, kept him in the chicken coop uh, for a while and beat him. Uh, his father had run off uh, to live with his fourth wife and family. And he effectively survived by living on the streets, by taking uh, rotten refuse out of uh, people's bins, uh, which then, of course, made him ill, and collecting tennis balls at the local tennis courts. And um, the only kind of companionship and belonging he could find was with a group of other boys the same, who uh, became a gang and would rob people for a sense of empowerment. He... The first stabbing that he committed, he found hard, but someone said to him, you just need to keep going and then it'll dull, dull your senses to what you're doing. And that was right, that's what happened. Um, and in time, he, uh, he became part of a Marxist group that wanted to cause as much disruption as possible. And he, he found himself leading a group with, uh, with bombs. They had bombs in bags. They were going to blow up a store. And then they saw this tent meeting. And they thought, well, let's, these guys are Christians, great, that, you know, that's, people come to um, tell us fables and take our, our, everything that possesses to us from our country away from us. Let's blow them up. So you guys, you stay outside and you just kill everyone who comes out and I'll go with my bombs and I'll, and I'll start. Oh, just give me five minutes. So he goes in and this beautiful girl stands up to speak and give her testimony at the front of this Christian mission. And uh, he's so entranced with the beauty that he doesn't do anything. Then he listens and she seems to have this forgiveness and grace and acceptance. And um, she sits down and he does nothing while somebody else stands up. And this evangelist shouts out, the wages of sin is death. And uh, he's, he's pointing his finger. Stephen Lungu is, is dodging because he thinks that the finger is being pointed at him. For his sins, he thinks that uh, his uh, other gang members who have by now come in and sat on the pew next to him have told the evangelist at the front what his particular sins are. And he, 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 he then waits, there's a period of silence, and then the evangelist just breaks into, into tears. And he's uh, very struck by this because, uh, because one minute he'd been pointing with judgment and then, and then these tears of compassion. And what he does is he goes to the front and he just holds on to the evangelist's leg. And the stewards try and take him out and get him away. And of course, he's just not going to let go. And eventually the evangelist says, just, 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 just leave him. Because he wanted 
the, the grace and acceptance that this evangelist had. And after the meeting, uh, the evangelist, uh, he sort of tells his story, it bubbles out to this evangelist. And the evangelist says, I was abandoned as well by my mother. She wrapped me in a rag and put me down the toilet. And uh, I, so I was found there because I wasn't wanted. And he said, I had this verse that was given to me. When your father and mother forsake you, the Lord will take you up. And uh, so Stephen Lungu, what a marvellous thought. Marvellous verse. Your father and mother will forsake you. The Lord will take you up. And he records in his, in his, uh, in his uh, autobiography, the Lord took me up. What a wonderful picture of the justice of God preached by that evangelist and the grace of God that came to Stephen Lungu through the message of the cross. That even though he was a sinner, he was also someone who sinned against others. And yet... He was able to find grace. I wonder, have you been taken up by the Lord? If you haven't, I encourage you to seek him this afternoon. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your justice. We thank you for the things that we see around us that appall us on the television. The things that we read about and we pray about in the prayer diary that happened to our brothers and sisters in other countries. Um, that appall us, they appall you as well. The things that happen in our own lives that we that can embitter us and that we struggle to let go of, that nobody else sees and cares about, you care about. You are a God of justice. We thank you also that you are a God of grace and that the Lord Jesus has made it possible for us, even though we are sinners, to find forgiveness. We pray that this evening that you would take us up uh, and that uh, your grace uh, would come to each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Peter. It's interesting as